will you please pray with me? Now, O Lord, take my lips and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you. Amen. Good morning. So as most of you know, I recently returned from a mission trip to Pakistan, a country that I have come to know and love over the last five years or so. And back in March, uh, Abe Becker and myself uh, traveled to visit some mission partners, Bishop Mushtaq and Bishop Leo, and two pastors just outside of Lahore. And here's a photo of us uh, boarding the plane, hopefully. There we go, looking all happy and joyful. And we did an end shot as well. We looked really tired at the end, didn't we? It was on the plane on the way back. And yeah, one of the reasons that um, I wanted to go was that there was something that I wanted to see with my own eyes that I had heard about, but I really wanted to be a part of and to actually uh, see it. And it's a four-day conference called ARC Pakistan. Eliza, would you go ahead again? Oh, um, this is, sorry, let me tell you first. This is one of our mission partners, Bishop Leo. Uh, he's one of the guys that we visited. And Leo is the bishop of a diocese that many of you helped raise funds for at the beginning of the pandemic. And he had 60 staff, clergy, various people that had no income coming into their churches because everything had been shut down. And so many of you gave money so that each of their pastors could have $100 each month to buy food, groceries, et cetera, et cetera for their families. Um, so they were really grateful and they, they um, really welcomed me as I came in. And uh, go on one more, Eliza. I got to preach in the cathedral right there, this beautiful um, 19th century built in the um, uh, 1840s by the British Army when they were in Pakistan, which was then India. And I got to preach there. You can see scaffolding in the background. They're actually restoring it right now. And that was a really great time. Skip ahead again, Eliza. Uh, this is uh, another thing we visited that Bishop Mushtaq has been working on. It's a school that many of you helped to fund. It doesn't look much like a school right now. You can see it's kind of still in the building process. But they've built a three-story school that is going to have 100-plus students there learning each day. And the, some of the money that you give has gone towards funding that school. That's a, a beautiful partnership we have going on. Go ahead again, Eliza. So this is nothing like that school, right? This is the resort where the conference was held, Ark Pakistan, okay? And um, at, at a distance, it looks pretty nice. It's kind of seen better days, so it's kind of faded glory a little bit. Um, but it's still an amazing place to have a conference, because when you think of Pakistan, you probably don't think of a resort like this. Skip ahead again, Eliza. There I am with Abe in our special garb that we were given. Everywhere we went this time, they decided they were going to give us hats. So in my, in my office, is a collection of hats. I probably won't ever wear around Daniel Island, but they are there. They look beautiful, as do we, obviously. And uh, there's Abe with uh, Rufin, a pastor that he made a connection with, who's a new partner that we have that we're excited about. And Abe is actually going to tell us a bit more about that later. Um, and then skip on again. So this is the conference. When you think of Pakistan, you generally don't think of whoa, <laughs> look at this media and technology, look at what they've done. They put on this beautiful event with about 500 pastors, and the last day, they had another 1,000 people come into this space. And that's my wide-angle shot, so it, doesn't, it kind of distorts it a bit, but it's a huge room, and there you can see all the technology they got. And it's an amazing event that I wanted to be a part of, and I'm so glad that I got to go. You see, ARC is an acronym for the Association of Related Churches, and it looks very much like its annual equivalent that happens just down the road at Seacoast, their Long Point campus, every year. There's an ARC America as well, ARC North America, and now they have ARC Pakistan. And they gather pastors together to build them up, to equip them to serve better. But the bigger purpose is to unite them, that they might be one. Or skip ahead again, Eliza, they might be ache. Say ache with me. Ache. ache. And raise one finger like this. 
one. Eight, hold on a second. That's too good. I've got to get a picture of that. Hold on. Because <laughs> wherever we go in Pakistan, we're always saying this and saying eight. So put your fingers up again. Perfect. Say eight. Keep going. Eight. Keep them up. Brilliant. All right. I'm going to send that to Mushtaq. He is going to love that. Many of you have met him already, but I will send that to him. And so they want to help these pastors to be one, ache, as it translates in Urdu. And trust me, this is no easy task. You see, just like the United States, when you get hundreds of pastors in the room, you also get hundreds of egos as well, all right? <laughs> but Bishop Mushtaq and his team have done an incredible job of helping people to see that the kingdom advances when we submit ourselves to Jesus and when we submit ourselves to each other. And that as many of the participants wrote down, we are better together. Would you skip on, Eliza? They did this activity where they were being trained, and at the end they had to write some post-its about it, and they put better together is God's idea. That was one of the, the pastors who was there. And then one more, Eliza. We are better together. We must work together, which will bring unity and harmony. And there really was a clear emphasis, and they got the message, as you could tell from what they were writing at the end of the conference. Well, that unity is a powerful witness to the world, you see, ache, unity. It's, it's a hard thing to achieve, and not just across denominations like they're doing there, but within local churches like ours. We may have a few hundred people who would call Holy Cross Daniel Island our home, and it's hard to achieve even just in a smaller church like this. But today, we will see that unity is a byproduct of a church that's focused on worshiping Jesus and serving him, and that is filled with the power of the Spirit. So let's turn to our reading from Acts chapter 4 and see what God would say to each one of us today. You can follow along on the announcement sheet you were given, or you can use your Bible app on your phone, or Eliza will have it up on the screen for us as well. And what we'll find is that today we're in the middle of a sermon series called Outward Bound. We're looking at the book of Acts. And the context of today's reading is that two of Jesus' disciples, Peter and John, they've healed a man. You don't get this in our reading, but this is the context from the previous chapter. A man who was lame from birth, who'd gone to the temple each day to beg and been seen there for years and years and years. And as you can imagine, when a guy like that gets up and starts walking, even dancing around, a crowd gathers because they're thinking, what on earth has just happened. And so Peter and John take the opportunity to preach the good news of the gospel to this crowd about Jesus' life, death, and uh, resurrection. Well, the captain of that temple and the religious leaders who see this, the Sadducees at this time, they're annoyed by this. After all, the Sadducees were a group of people who didn't believe in the resurrection. They get upset about what's happening in the temple, on the Temple Mount. Reminded me of a time that uh, we went to Israel, Melissa and I, with a bunch of pastors, and we went to visit the Temple Mount, of course, as you do when you go to Jerusalem. And we were outside um, the mosque that's there now. There's no temple, if you're wondering. The temple is long destroyed, um, but there is a mosque there now. And our tour guide was just telling us a bit about the Temple Mount and about the temple that used to stand there. And a guy who was outside the mosque, probably kind of a, cl- a plain clothes guy, um, perhaps guarding the mosque, a Muslim, he shouted over that there had never been any temple in that place. 
No Jewish temple had ever existed on the Temple Mount. It reminded me a bit of what was happening in our story today. He didn't like the fact that we were talking about that there. Well, the Sadducees did not like the fact that Jesus was talking about the resurrection of the dead, that they didn't even believe him. And so they have Peter and John arrested. And then they bring them before the high priest, the same one that had had Jesus crucified not too long before. And these people here, they're quite astounded when the Holy Spirit speaks through these uneducated, these common men, they're fishermen. How are they speaking so well? But not having any credible reason to charge them, they let them go and they tell them not to teach about Jesus anymore. Which brings us to our passage for today. Acts chapter 4, verses 23 and 24. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God. So Peter and John, if you imagine something major has happened in your life, what do you do? You tell your friends, right? They go back, they tell their friends what's just happened. And that must include the fact that they've been told not to share the gospel anymore. And then what do they do? Well, they all begin to pray. They begin to pray. And what do they pray for? Well, they pray for God to give them the power to speak his word with boldness. Clearly, the threats of the religious leaders are intimidating because they're, they're asking for boldness. They know they need that. But the threats are not enough to stop those first disciples carrying out the commands that Jesus has given them, the command to go out and to make disciples of all nations. No, they are going to do what millions of Christians around the world are doing today, even as we meet here. People in countries such as China or North Korea, Pakistan, Iran, they are continuing to proclaim the gospel against the express commands of their government. It's one of those times that it is right to resist the government. When a command of God, in other words, the Great Commission, comes into direct conflict with a command of man. In other words, stop proclaiming the gospel. And you know, when we do this, God honors this. And what we see around the world is the church is growing incredibly in these places. And in the case of these first disciples, we see that God answers their prayer, verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. They prayed for it. They got it. You see, when God commands us to do something, when he commands us to do something, he doesn't leave us powerless to do it. He provides the strength and the means to carry out his desires. He is faithful through and through. And it is certainly his desire for others to hear the word of God proclaimed, the truth that Jesus Christ, has, uh, God himself, has become human, has lived a perfect life among us, has died to pay for our sins, risen from the dead, conquering death, and provides a way for all of us to be saved and to be restored to right relationship with the Father. Well, today, like the first disciples, we too are called to go out in the power of the Holy Spirit and to proclaim the word of God boldly. We're to share our faith with others, that they too might be saved and become a part of the family of God, the church, to be one in heart and soul with their brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus, which brings us to the second part of our story today. Verses 32 onwards. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. They had everything in common. You see, the early church was united. It was ache. Well done. You didn't say one. Well done. It was ache. It was united. 
You see, while the early Christians certainly differed in their opinions of many things, whether it was food or customs, clothing, language, etc., etc., and remember that very first Pentecost, there were tons of different nations represented. They were still united as to who Jesus was, that he was the Lord of all. And all of them recognized the necessity of living for him. And they were united by the Spirit. So we read in verse, uh, verse 4 of 1 Corinthians 12, There are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all in everyone. Or to quote a more contemporary writer, Bono, of the band U2, we're one, but we're not the same. We get to carry each other, carry each other. Yes, well done. I was trying to catch you out, but I didn't. <laughs> Next week, Simon says. Just wait and see. So A.W. Tozer explains it like this. Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos, imagine in your head, 100 pianos, all different shapes, sizes, brands, all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other. They are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard to which one must individually bow. So 100 worshippers met together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. Jesus unites us. People may not share our interests, our race, our level of education, our income status, our musical or liturgical tastes, our political views, but they are still brothers and sisters in Christ. However, there's a problem, as Al Mohler writes, Western society relentlessly promotes and prioritizes individualism. But that's not how God designed his church. Christianity, he continues, is a team sport, not a solo game. God wants us to cling to him and to gather in unity with other Christians so that we build one another in the grace of the gospel. Or as Michael Reeves more succinctly puts it, a culture of individual isolation and lone rangers is not a culture of the gospel. A culture of individual isolation and lone rangers is not a culture of the gospel. The Apostle Paul, using the analogy of the church as a physical body, writes in 1 Corinthians 12, The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. It is only, friends, when we submit to God as our king that we can truly be united with our brothers and sisters. Until then, we're just imposters or even double agents. But once we do, incredible things happen. And we see it here in the example of how the early church had everything in common. Did you catch that? We saw it in Acts 2 last week when Chris was preaching, but now we see it again. Clearly, one mark of a true church is that no one is needy. No one goes wanting and that no one sees their possessions as their own anymore. That house, that spare room, that donkey, that field, that barn filled with wheat, etc. They belong to their church family their church family. And note that this isn't an early form of communism, as some might say. No, no one is forced to do this. 
They choose to do it because of the fact that Jesus has chosen to empty himself and give himself away, completely dying on a cross that we might live. Yes, it's a response of gratitude and love, not fear and duty. Now, for us today, the possessions might be something different. They might be a car, maybe a boat, some jewelry or antiques, a second home that we have, some stocks we have, some savings, even one of our most precious commodities, our time. But the idea is the same. Once we know Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we see nothing that we own as ours anymore. Now we see with kingdom eyes, kingdom eyes. And where there's a need, we respond immediately with, yes, I can help. Yes, I'll do it. This is church at its best, diverse, but unified and generous towards each other. Now, in the light of what we've heard today, I want us to ask a few questions of ourselves. And the first one is this. Do I know the Jesus of the Scriptures? You see, questions two and three, which we'll come to in a moment, really won't make sense unless you answer this one. You see, if you think Jesus is a wise teacher or a religious guru or even a myth, then you are not reading the Bible correctly. If we just had it read for us in the gospel, it's very clear about who he is. And he's very clear about who he is. That he is the son of God. He's the Messiah prophesied about in the Old Testament. Chosen to come and set all people free from sin and death. That he was there at the dawn of creation. He is uncreated, as we put it. And that he humbled himself and entered into this world as a human. He lived a sinless life, proclaiming the message that people everywhere need to repent and believe. And then he died upon a cross to pay the price for our sin before rising again three days later, defeating death, ascending to heaven where he is with the Father, waiting until he will one day come back and gather up all those who know and love him and follow him. This is the Jesus of the scriptures. And he expects us, as he ends our gospel reading today, he expects us to lay down our lives for him, something these disciples were clearly very willing to do. And I don't believe they would have done it for a wise teacher or a religious guru or certainly not for a myth. No, they knew that he was who he said he was, the way, the truth, and the life. And so today, if you don't know him, if you're choosing not to follow him, don't mess around any longer. Give your life to Jesus, and please tell me that you did it. I'd like to know so that I can help you in the next steps. But if you have already done this, then the second or third questions are for you. The second one is this. Am I proclaiming the gospel boldly? Now, what do I mean? Well, perhaps the following illustration helps. Peter Cartwright was a great circuit-riding Methodist preacher in Illinois in the mid-19th century, and he was an uncompromising man. He had actually come north from Tennessee because of his opposition to slavery. Well, one Sunday morning when he was scheduled to preach, his deacons told him that President Andrew Jackson, no less, was in the congregation. And knowing Cartwright was used to saying whatever he felt God wanted him to say, regardless of how people might react, they warned him not to say anything that might offend the chief executive. Well, Cartwright stood up to preach, and during his sermon, he said this, I understand President Andrew Jackson is here. I've been requested to be guarded in my remarks. Andrew Jackson will go to hell if he does not repent. Not very guarded, right? <laughs> you know, the audience was a little shocked, as you may have been. 
and they wondered how the president would respond to this. But after the service, Andrew Jackson went up to Cartwright and he said, Sir, if I had a regiment of men like you, I would whip the world. <laughs> Friends, when the Spirit's at work in us, we do not fear what others will think of the truth of the gospel. Even those who are far more powerful than us, even those whose opinions we're really worried about, the gospel now is weaved in with every conversation that we have because it is the very air that we breathe. All right, third and final question. Am I united with my church family? Now, what do I mean by this? Well, perhaps another way to figure this out is to ask, how do you treat the church? How do you treat the church? Is it like a family or is it more like an institution? If it's the latter, then you might hear yourself saying things like this. Well, I don't have to go to church to be a Christian. Or I believe in Jesus, but my church is when I'm in the woods or by the lake. Or people have hurt me, so it's just me and God. Or perhaps if you do participate, you might say, I didn't get much out of church today. Or maybe I don't have time to be in relationship with another Christian. Or I'm just looking for a church to meet my needs. Or even, I don't like all these new folks coming to church. Don't they know they just sat in my seat? (laughs) When it's like family, though, we tend to say things like, I wonder who from church I could have lunch with this week. Or who could I invite uh, invite to join my life group? Or I'm going to be praying for new folks to start coming to worship with us. Or perhaps I should start prioritizing Sunday morning worship as I need to be more present with my church family. Or maybe I wonder how I could serve on Sunday mornings that would most bless my brothers and sisters. Or maybe I should start inviting other people from the church over for dinner so I can get to know them better. Or perhaps I want to let that single mom at church use my rental apartment while she gets back on her feet. Or maybe God's been really blessing me financially, so I want to give away half of this money for kingdom work. Do you see the difference? You see that the first approach is very self-centered, isn't it? But the second approach is very other-centered. I think the first one is very fearful, to be honest, whereas the second one requires living by faith and putting our trust in God. In fact, it requires God's grace at work in us, the power of the Spirit. Well, I'll, I'll close with this. Last Sunday, I took some time off to go to Atlanta. Some of you probably noticed, some of you probably didn't. That's okay. <laughs> You're like, who's that strange guy with Jonathan grew a beard? <laughs> and it was to check off one of the items on my wife's bucket list uh, to see Coldplay in concert. I actually, I actually saw them about 22 years ago in Liverpool, but I was excited to see them again. They, were really, they are a really good band. And for those of you who've never heard of them, okay, which rock have you been living under, number one? <laughs> but they are a British rock or pop band that's been around for about 25 years or so and who are one of the biggest bands in the world. Well, guess what? There were 55,000 people there that night in the Mercedes-Benz Stadium. And to be honest, I thought going in, in fact, we talked about this, that we might be some of the younger folk there. We thought, yeah, you know, this is kind of a bit like dad rock, right? <laughs> and people probably, they're going to be a little older, more middle-aged like us, all right? But as we arrived at the stadium, I could see that I was way off. I mean, there were people of all different ages, from babies, they had those special noise-canceling headphones on, right? Uh, To uh, kids in their uh, teens, and then um, parents, obviously, and grandparents, and so on. There were people of all different races, different income brackets. Uh, There were people from all different places represented. We were really a very diverse crowd. 
Well, one of the best things about the concert, however, was that on the way in, we were all given these plastic um, bracelets to put on our wrists. They're about the size of a watch, and there seemed to be nothing particularly special about them. But during the first song, my bracelet lit up and started flashing in rhythm with the music. And as I looked around the stadium, everyone else's bracelets, including Hannah and Caroline and Audra, they were there too, their bracelets were flashing in the same rhythm, okay? And there were 55,000 of us united by music and lights. And it was this incredibly powerful experience. But as I reflected on it later on, however moving that was, and trust me, it was, it was a beautiful moment I'll never forget, it is still nothing compared to the unity that believers experience when they worship Jesus Christ. You see, I have discovered I can go halfway around the world to a predominantly Muslim country and meet people who do not speak the same language as me and who are far below the poverty line, and yet I experience incredible unity in Christ with them far more than with any non-believer at a Coldplay concert wearing a flashing bracelet. Am I right, Abe? Amen. Amen to that. We have so much in common. We are united. And it's that unity that leads me to want to be generous uh, with my giving towards them to help them build churches and schools, as you just saw, and to buy rickshaws so their children can get an education, as we'll hear about in a moment. And a unity that leads me to want to pray for them and visit them whenever possible to show them there are other people praying for them and that there are others around the world who are united with them in their desire to see their country become a predominantly Christian nation. You see, Christian unity, being one, ache, isn't limited by international boundaries. Certainly, it begins there. Sorry, or isn't limited by local boundaries. Certainly, it begins there. And if we can't be united, but we let ourselves be divided by things like politics or income or race, then we will not have an impact for the gospel in our community. Trust me. But if we submit our lives to Jesus, the one true tuning fork, if you will, and keep him as the focus of our worship and our daily lives, we will be united across international borders and we will be ache and we will have an impact for God's kingdom both here in Charleston and far beyond. Can I get an amen? amen. Can I get another amen? amen? All right, let's pray. Holy Spirit, come. Would you unite us as one as we... Uh, turn our eyes towards Jesus. Lord, would you unite us so that others would see our unity as well and that they would be drawn to you. Uh, we are a disparate group of people, particularly when you take into account the church across the world, Lord God. But you unite us. And when we are united, people are drawn to you. And we pray for that more and more, that people will be added daily to our number. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.